0: Steve McQueen was born in 1930 Indiana to an alcoholic mother and a circus pilot father. His childhood was a revolving door, moving back and forth from his uncle's farm in Missouri to wherever his mother was at the time with whatever fellow she was with, who would often beat up on Steve. This led him to take him to the streets, running with kid gangs, and joining the circus. He had every job that your average 1940s teenager would have. Swabbing the decks of a ship with a merchant marine, being a towel boy at a brothel in the Dominican Republic, and being a lumberjack in Canada, a carny, even working on a chain gang for a month. So sit back on your Harley, enjoy the second installment of Steve McQueen. Welcome to
1: Film History, The the History of Film! I have no idea what Dev starts. on. Oh, me neither. Is it now? It can't be now. There's no way. Wait, it's coming up. Okay, hold on. Okay. Places. Places. The history of film That that a who even likes go dim go From James, James Cagney to Nosferatu And stunts that shock you And Dirty dirty, dirty tricks to your
3: from Wings to,
0: from wings to top, top
1: Gun Movie stars and no one's we crazy fans that, fans that leave in no a no real, real. real it's fun Hollywood Is film history in Hollywood They chase the Oscar But it's all a sham Just like Shaq and Kazam
0: All your dreams can come true Film history The history, the history of film
3: All of it made for you, you.
0: Good god that was terrible By the way, he was on a chain gang for a month. I, I didn't put that in there. Yeah, I, I, I thought, missed it.
1: I thought that that was new information.
0: He got arrested for vagrancy at some point, and he I was thought on you chain were just
2: gang. riffing, and I thought you were just, <laughs> that just No, mean,
0: he really was. Does that mean being homeless? Yeah. Got arrested yeah, for being homeless? Being, yeah <laughs> that used to be very illegal, by the way. If they found out you were homeless, like, too homeless, you went to jail. <laughs> uh, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, they they usually used it as just an excuse to get someone in jail. Like mm. that happens, it still happens in New yeah. Orleans. If you're being yeah. a little too homeless out there, yeah. they'll put you in
1: jail. We need someone to break rocks in a quarry. Yeah, you look like just a guy. See. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We need more free labor. Yeah. And this guy doesn't well, have yeah, a house those, to go back to. Yeah. Those
2: <laughs> chain so gangs, <laughs> especially in the South, dude. Those chain gangs. Um, were just hired work labor. So, like, private, like construction companies and, like, the city and state would hire the prison's chain gang for nothing, and the person, the, like, the sheriffs running it and the people who ran the prison, uh, the wardens, would collect all the cash, but they would just fucking use their prisoners as slave labor. That was a big thing in the haunted jail I used to work at. <laughs> they did an episode of Ghost Hunters in there. There's been a bunch oh, of those sweet. TV shows in there. You can go on... YouTube I'm sure But you know Travel channels been in there Like three or four times It's like a big Old thing Zach
0: Baggins Zach Baggins went in there I gotta watch that episode I probably I, have seen you, that episode
1: I didn't I didn't see that episode Of I wa- Lord of the Rings I, Zach Baggins
0: I, <laughs> I watch Oh yeah I watch uh, I watch Ghost Adventures Like way too much It's probably my number one show That I watch <laughs> Wait really? Oh yeah. yeah I heard of this it's show It's ridiculous It's just It's back it, it, Zach Baggins <laughs> <laughs> Zach so Baggins It's, it's so, so silly It's the ghost
2: equivalent Of <laughs> Ancient Aliens Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay and my cool. favorite my yeah. favorite thing is that cool. Zach
0: will some episodes he'll get possessed by whatever ghost there. Oh good. Yeah. <laughs> the, and this developed in like the seventh season. Like the first six seasons, Zach never gets possessed. But I think six seasons and you know, the numbers started to sag a little bit. So he started Ratings, getting possessed. By and demons. they
2: wanted that they wanted that yeah. syndication, baby.
0: Yeah, and now he like
2: seven seasons.
0: And, and this new season, he hadn't gotten possessed yet. And I was like, dude, when is that going to get possessed this season? And this latest episode, he went all out. He just got, like, super possessed, you know? <laughs> 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 it's pretty great. So we're back today, everyone, to talk about The King of Cool, the Cincinnati kid himself and star of movies like Bullet and The Getaway. It's part two of Steve McQueen. Rev up them Harleys, ladies and gents, and everything in between.
2: Steve, good old Steve McQueen. Not only is my new favorite person in Hollywood history, but I believe he's also my spirit animal at he, this
0: point. He is something else, man. And we're about to get we're about to connect this episode to a lot. He is very film history uh, oriented. He's. We're going to talk about Cagney. I mean, he was born, you know, on the day of Cag, yes. nineteen thirty. What is it called? The
1: the year of Cag. Um, the BOC. B-O-C. Yeah. Um. Well, so when we left off, he was going to join the Marines, yes. right? And he yeah. said this relates to his film career it, somehow. It it does in a lot of ways.
0: The year now he's seventeen years old. The year is nineteen forty seven. He's living with his girlfriend, Sue Ann, and her rich parents in Myrtle Beach, Carolina. Carolina. So he's just kind of being a rich boy right now. You know, just living on the beach with his girlfriend. Um, but for whatever reason, he decides this is too cushy. I, he was the type of guy who would get scared when he got too comfortable, for sure. And he asked his mom's permission. His mom didn't give a shit what he did, because she hasn't even seen him in a while. And he joined the Marine Corps. It's so
2: funny to me. He don't ask his mom for fuck permission for anything yeah. else, but he asked permission to go to the Marine Corps. Yeah, hey, mom, yeah. Can I join a kid gang and steal hubcaps? I, you didn't think to ask me permission to do that, but...
0: Yeah, basically out of sight, out of mind. I don't give a shit what you do, you know. It's, it
2: very, it's very telling. It sounds like all he wanted was the approval of his mother. Exactly,
0: yeah. So uh, he he ships off to nearby Paris Island for boot camp for the United States Marine Corps. And we mentioned a little bit before, but the Marine Corps at the time was fresh out of the Pacific Theater in World War II. And, like, the only guys left in the Corps were career Marines and guys who had been to, like, Iwo Jima and shit. (laughs) So this is, like, the wrong year to join the Marines. (laughs) They're fresh out of war. There's no war coming up. And these guys are basically just pissed off at all the guys who didn't go, you know. Mm. Um, so he he gets there. They There's a story about, like, he gets off the bus, and he bent over to get his luggage, and he got, like, whipped by a drill sergeant. The drill sergeant, like, like, whipped his ass, literally, as soon as he got off the bus. And he quickly got the reputation of troublemaker, and he was assigned to do, like, the shittiest things on the base. And they made him... They made him sand the deck of his barracks with a brick at one point, apparently, for like eight hours or some shit. What the fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they said uh, he had to, of course, he had to march through swamps, you know, the Carolinas, and he had to sleep in a bed with 12 loaded guns, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why, but they made him sleep with a bunch of guns that were loaded. <laughs> That's what he says, anyway. Uh, he also did a lot of acid in the early 70s. Really? So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, we're going to get into that he too. He seemed
1: like too serious of the type.
0: I thought so too. Steve liked to get down. Uh, really? Yeah, that's wild. for sure. There Wait, was a- is he doing
1: acid while on the military barracks?
0: <laughs> At this point, he's only 17. He's just dreaming of acid. Oh, okay, this will drive right. him to probably do acid. Okay, on, all right. You
3: know.
1: He's like, oh, I was sleeping with all the guns. <laughs> 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 all the guns are in my bed. <laughs>
0: Loaded, I swear. <laughs> And while he's in boot camp at Paris Island, he also got in. uh, He got noticed by the boxing team on base, and they slapped a pair of gloves on him to basically fight like the gunboat Smith of the camp. You know, (laughs) he had to fight like the biggest, toughest dude there. And this dude knocked Steve down ten times before Steve finally threw in the towel. But this did give Steve like a love for boxing, even though he got his ass kicked. He was he fell in love with it. So, again, we got another boxer. Yeah. You know, I'm telling you, it's just Cagney, the, the, the kid who gets bottles thrown at him, and then gets into boxing, and then becomes a movie star, and yeah. gets on Broadway.
1: Wait, Stephen McQueen's <laughs> on Broadway, too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Stephen yeah. Queen has big Broadway beginnings. Does not seem the type. I oh, that's, no. that's wild. Yeah. All these, all these tough guy actors. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Dancing, yeah. singing, and uh, doing acid. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> dancing, singing, and doing acid tough guy. Well,
2: I mean, <laughs> I know why he was at Broadway. Because I'm sure he was one of the only straight guys in a sea of women and gay dudes.
0: Mm. Actually, that is a big reason why he started theater. It wow. was because of all the pretty girls, he said. "Wow, um,
2: There's no competition. Are you kidding yeah. me? It was one of the greatest <laughs> things ever. I grew up in a dance studio, bro. I used to get made fun of all the time by my jock friends who were like, oh, what are you doing? You're going to go dance after school? And I'm like, yo... <laughs> I, you guys are gonna go get hot and sweaty and roll around in the mud with a bunch of other dudes. I get to hang out with girls in leotards in air condition yeah, and do this yeah. and lift them up with my hands and like That's like cute.
0: That's like the dudes that's like the dudes who made fun of male cheerleaders. It's like, bro, that guy is six foot three, two hundred and fifty pounds, and just lifts cheerleaders all day. Like that's his job. <laughs> I think we lose. We're sitting in the stands watching him have fun. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) So Steve gets a weekend pass from the Marines and he head straight to Myrtle Beach, you know, to hang out with his sweetheart Sue Ann. He took that long voyage from Paris Island all the way to Myrtle Beach. And he probably started wondering why the fuck he joined the Marines because he, he had the weekend pass and he stretched that into a two week pass. Uh, And eventually the military police showed up to his door and arrested him for being AWOL. And they actually threw him into the brig for 41 days and he got twenty one days for being AWOL, and there were twenty additional days added to his sentence for resisting arrest. I guess he kept fighting the cops, <laughs> fighting everybody, you know. He's like he's like Bronson from that Tom Hardy movie at this point. Well, and the real life guy. <laughs> but uh yeah, he didn't go quietly. So when he's finally released from the brig, this is some weird shit that I have to tell you guys about. I got very this this gives me some strange vibes, and I wanted to run it by you guys. He's released from the brig, and he's assigned to a tank division, and he gets sent to the Arctic with a tank division in 1947. And I don't know why the fuck the U.S. Marine Corps tank division was in the Arctic in 1947.
2: If there's anything, it's just an excuse for them to go do mind control experiments on him in some bunker somewhere. That's what I was thinking. And say he was was in the fucking Arctic.
0: (laughs) I see it now. It's Operation High Jump. It started in 1946. Yeah, people died in this shit. Yeah, it was uh this was consolidating and extending the United States sovereignty over the largest practicable area of the Antarctic continent. We were all going for the ice places. Like Dev said, to set up very secret bases to do weird experiments.
2: I mean, there's still <laughs> giant chunks of Antarctica that are unclaimed by any yeah, nation. Yeah,
0: that's some weird Isn't shit. Isn't all of
2: Antarctica technically unclaimed it's by like any
0: nation? It's like no man's land well, yeah, kind, like or every man's
2: like- land. There's, like, gotcha. territories for research and stuff. But yeah, yeah, like, yeah.
1: There's, like, research bases, but no one, owns Antarctica, right? Isn't it, like... They, like, sectioned
2: land? it off into territories. So they, like, took mm. it like a pie and did, like, this little... sec This slices mm. America, this slices Russia. Yeah. And that's mm. what they use for their research areas.
0: Well, uh, so Steve's in the Arctic with the tank company. And uh, while he's there, he saved five Marines from a boat that was sinking into some icy water and this was like a big he get you know that's badass they, yeah yeah he saved a bunch of marines in that
2: water you die in like four minutes yeah it's
0: yeah it's so cold yeah i i've i didn't look too far into the story just because i wanted to get through his marine corps career but a boat was sinking and he got five marines off of there it was a big deal and uh this was they they shipped him out of the arctic after this i guess like you did your thing And they assigned him to protect President Harry Truman. And he stayed in his service for the rest of his three-year enlistment in the Marine Corps. He guarded the USS Williamsburg, the presidential yacht. That Whoa. was his, yeah, man. <laughs> presidential yeah. I the didn't know there was a yacht. presidential yacht. <laughs> I didn't either, and it was a bigger thing back in the day. The president had a boat as well as, you know, the Air Force, Air Force One. One. He had the USS Williamsburg. It was a battleship that actually saw some service in World War II in, like, Iceland and shit. Wow. But, yeah, President Harry Truman would just ride around on a battleship, and it was, like, his personal, you know, cruiser, and it was loaded, too. Like, that thing was ready to... Fuck shit up if anybody got close to it, and so was Hugh McQueen because he was guarding it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my god, wild. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny, it's, man. That sounds like it could be a cushy way to end your end your service. That's true. Uh, yeah. Like on a presidential yacht, yeah, it's probably nice there. <laughs>
0: yeah, Harry Truman literally took this thing like down by you, dev He would take it to like the Florida Keys and just ride around on a battleship, and, like have his meetings, you know. And yeah, I'm sure Let's Steve do. was chilling. Yeah, I'm sure mm-hmm. it was not a. I, I he's probably not scrubbing the decks like he did in the Merchant Marine. You know, mm. he's just riding around on a yacht at this point. <laughs> so so he gets his honorable discharge from the Marines uh, three weeks before the outbreak of the Korean War. and Convenient. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and according to his first wife, Neil, uh, she said that he got discharged, the Korean War popped off, and his whole unit that he was with went to Korea and got wiped out. So apparently he, like, narrowly avoided being killed in the war. So when he gets out of the Marines, he, said he headed straight from Myrtle Beach again to Sue Ann. And Sue Ann's dad was actually telling Steve he wanted him as a son-in-law. Like, you would make a great son-in-law. You were this heroic Marine. Why don't you just marry my daughter, and I'll kind of set you up for life financially. So he had this chance where he could just kind of live cushy for the rest of his life and be rich, you know, husband in myrtle beach but uh he did not (laughs) he did not want this at all it apparently it terrified him and he ran away without ever even saying goodbye one night like he used to like he he snuck out of the window like old school steve mcqueen style he winds he winds up in washington dc and he works as a taxi driver and a mechanic for a bit i wonder if he ever saw harry you know if he's over in dc I wonder if he saw Harry Truman at the at the bar, you know.
2: <laughs> Steve McQueen's really just like, he went and worked for the CIA instead of being in the Arctic. <laughs> That's what I and think, And then man. he was like, chilling with Harry Truman as like, Harry Truman's like, fucking personal hitman. Exactly. And like, you know, he goes back to DC and his cover is a taxi driver. That's and yeah. Driving people around, bro. This motherfucker is clearly in the CIA.
0: He's in the CIA, man. <laughs> they sent him to the Arctic to like actually get you know some experiments done in his brain, and then he just wants to up go being
2: a- to the alien, secret alien Nazi <laughs> base down
0: there. <laughs> Dude, we should definitely make that show: the secret alien Nazi base. <laughs> so, um, uh <laughs> so
1: Sue enters out of the picture.
0: Sue Ann is now out of the picture. He never saw Sue Ann again. It was literally her dad was like, "You should marry my daughter," and he ran. He ran away. He didn't even <laughs> say goodbye. <laughs> he jumped out of a window, and uh, they said they yeah, like Sue Ann never saw him again. And he went. He, he after D.C. He went back up to Greenwich Village in New York to uh, go find his mom, and his mom had already moved to San Francisco. She left again. I think she met another guy. She's in San Francisco now. But Steve kind of—I think this is where he realizes, like, okay, no more mom, mm-hmm. no more Sue Ann. Mm-hmm. I'm in New York. I'm just gonna stay. Like yeah. I'm gonna—he, I think he finally—he rented a place for $19 a month, which, if you put that uh, through the oh old calculator, it's like $200 <laughs> a month. Um, That's still cheap as shit. <laughs> cheap as shit. He shared a bathroom with like a bunch of people. He lived in like kind of a hostel in a way in Greenwich at the time. And this was, so this is like 1950, you know, whenever he finally gets here. And um, we're going to get into it a little bit, but he basically moved into the explosion of the arts in New York at the time. This is pre-World War II. Uh, All these young people are flocking into New York and Greenwich Village is having this artistic revolution, basically. And when he gets there, he rents this $19 a month apartment, I'm sure, is filled with artist all over the hall, you know, and he, he's actually, he's living for free at the time too. He doesn't even have to pay for it because the GI Bill is paying for it oh, for now. Oh, word. Yeah, he got a GI Bill when he got out of the Marine Corps and they paid his rent for a while. And the GI Bill, it was, at the time, it was around $20 a week, which is like $200 a week. So, and they were paying his rent. So he's actually kind of making a little bit of money right now as well. Cool, so he's okay. just got time so, to, you know, find out what's going what on. What
2: was he doing in New York during this time? Like, uh, his day-to-day life?
0: So his day-to-day, I think he's just kind of bopping around New York. You know, he's making this money. And basically... This was...
2: What year was this? This said? was... 19- this is like
0: what? 1950. Like, around that time. And the GI Bill has a station where we will you this dollars a week you have to be out like looking for something you got to be looking to go to school looking to get a career we'll pay but it basically it's kind of like unemployment works now where you have to report what you looked into this week type of thing um and so what he's doing mm. is going around new york looking at schools he's looking at like he's trying to figure out what to do with his life in a mm. way he's looking at there's all these new schools opening up around here. What do I want to do? And there's a huge wave right now of jazz music and coffee shops, and it's just the early 1950s New York, you know, and he's walking around with his... His cuffed jeans and leather jacket and on a motorcycle.
1: <laughs> is, 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 is he riding motorcycles uh, at this point? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. He never stops. Steve okay.
0: literally was born on a motorcycle. <laughs> he's bopping around New York and he starts to realize he, he's living with a bunch of actors. Uh, he starts dating this one actress who lives in his building. They start seeing each other and he just sort of, he's around acting. You know, he's around a bunch of actors. And he kind of literally gets this thought of, like, well, who the fuck are these guys? Look at me. Like, I can be an actor. <laughs> you know, like, these guys aren't nearly as hot as I am. And it also, like Dev mentioned earlier, he realized there's a bunch of, like, just really hot people, pretty girls, doing <laughs> doing acting all over New York. And he starts to think, like, maybe this is the scene. You know? Okay. <laughs> so So he just looks in the classifieds. He finds some auditions. He starts showing up in some rooms around town. Just seeing what he can do. He picked up a little bit of work modeling for the covers of detective magazines. Detective magazines. Detective magazines. <laughs> and he would be like the guy with a gun, and there's like lady in lingerie on a bed behind him, you know. Cool. And his girlfriend, the girl who he dates in the building, she starts doing the same thing. They both do like detective oh, covers. Cool. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. Not fun. a bad gig, you yeah. know. Not a bad gig. And uh, I wish, man, I wish I knew this girl's name, the girl he was dating in his building, because she kind of, in a way, got him started into acting. Um, but Steve also, he he did a little shoplifting here and there. <laughs> Apparently he just couldn't, he couldn't go along without doing some crime. So he would like, not big stuff, but he said he would like steal an alarm clock from a drugstore and go pawn it off, stuff like that. He just kind of, I think he always had to have some sort of like edge,
1: you know. I I, I, th- I, th- I th- always feel like uh, he was Grifton. Yeah, like, he was Grifton. He was always he always had some he, sort you know, of. Scheme. He let him left the the kid gangs behind. Yeah, you know? yeah. He's always gonna be a kid ganger.
0: I just imagine this guy, twenty year old New York guy, early nineteen fifties, and it's just like that guy's always got a. He's always got some sort of scheme going. You know, I imagine that was said about him a lot. Old Steve's <laughs> always got a Yeah. <laughs>
2: I mean he probably had the typical like jeans and white shirt with Absolutely.
0: Hair, he was doing cigarettes. uh he was doing like underground you know? boxing matches for sixty five bucks. Really? Here and there. Yeah. Oh sweet. Yeah. Okay, so cool. he's he's just living the dream. He's living the New York he's life. He's living the New York life. He yeah. is like deep into the New York life. <laughs> Shit, life. They, man. You
1: guys wanna to move to New York let's and start do start doing man. underground boxing? Absolutely. And, and modeling for <laughs> for detective magazine. I would love
0: to model for a detective magazine. <laughs> I'll be in my lingerie on the bed.
2: Yeah, when did he start? Do you might I might be getting ahead, but uh, when did he start doing LSD? No, was this that was time after was he. After? That
0: was when he was a movie star. He would. He didn't find LSD until like yeah, the late oh, '60s, okay. early '70s.
2: Looking at, I was trying to think of the dates for because we were joking about the CIA stuff, and I was looked at MK Ultra and Operation Midnight Climax, Midnight where. Time. The CIA ran brothels
3: in Holy New York shit, City that's in so Greenwich weird. Village and in San Francisco, and San
2: Francisco? during the 1950s. That's it started where he had, in the 1950s and ran the mid-60s. That's where he and his mom mid-60s. are,
0: in Greenwich Village and San Francisco.
2: That's what That's I said. So That's why weird. I was so crazy. So maybe he has taken
0: <laughs> LSD. He just didn't tell anyone.
2: Well, you're like the government's paying him. He's going around to different schools and colleges. I'm like, this motherfucker That's so is weird. working for the CIA, <laughs> getting college kids into some brothels and just dosing <laughs> the fuck out of them. He's part and, of the whole artistic you know, movement. Yeah, his best he's life. one of the
0: reasons why everybody's being so artsy around here lately. He was always running a grift
2: And you know what? That would make so much sense. Like why he would get cast and shit later on. He'd be like, oh fuck, that was Steve, man. You remember that <laughs> night like six years ago when we got dosed That's the gonna, shit out of us? That'll be the name of man, this episode. Awesome. Steve McQueen
0: Part Two, always running a grift. There's always a grift. So one night, one night Steve's at his girlfriend's apartment, and they're doing whatever they do, 20-year-old New York lovers And she asks Steve if he can help if he can help her run some scenes that she's going to do the next day in her acting class, and like you know we we all know how that goes you got to help people run their lines for the next day and they run the lines, and she tells them you should come by school, you should come check out our class. you've been going around looking at all these schools, come by ours and she was going to at the time it was called the neighborhood playhouse run by Sanford Meisner, the Meisner. That was the school she was going to. Yeah. Yeah. So this was, I'm going to get into it a little bit, but I I decided I want to do a whole episode about this time when it was the the, the group theater and all of these method acting schools started popping up in New York. And it was like this huge method acting movement. Um, And she was part of it.
2: Show of hands in the audience if you guys know what method acting versus, uh, you know, Stanislavski versus Meisner is. Everybody, show I, hands. I don't know who those anybody? two
0: people are. Ah, that's why we need to do an episode on it, because they are very important. We I know
1: the concept of method acting.
0: Yeah. I don't know who
1: these uh, wizards These were like just the founding
0: fathers in America of method acting.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: uh, Stanislavski was Russian. Now right, yeah,
0: Russian. and then it got over here, because we weren't doing it, really. Yeah, it spread yeah. through it Europe, spread through Europe in yeah. the 30s and 40s, and it didn't really become a thing here until Marlon Brando became so huge, and he was method acting. And it, literally, in 1947, Marlon Brando did the Broadway version of A Streetcar Named Desire and became, like, the hottest fucking actor in the world, and they they every actor... Who was coming up? Decided it's time to go method, like Marlon Brando. And in 1951, the movie came out, and it even more solidified. So there's this whole movement going on. All these, like Dev said, like old Russian method acting is reaching America at this point.
1: Oh, and uh, so what year was this when Brando
2: did this that? This
0: is uh, he did that in 1947. Okay. He did, yeah, yeah. And so now it's and now 1951, the movie "Streetcar Named Desire" would come out. And, you know, it was... Did Brando was, still do that one? Did he do yeah, both the yeah, play and yeah. movie? Okay. Yeah, Brando started in that one as well. And it was one of those things where they basically brought the play to the screen and they brought the actors. Oh, cool. Him, okay. Know? And, um, but yeah, so Steve's girlfriend that he's dating, she's doing this. She's part of this movement. She's doing method acting in her school at the neighborhood playhouse. And, yeah, she's, she's studying under Meisner himself. And so Steve goes to sit in on a few classes, he falls in love with it. He, like, loves what he's seeing. It's, you know... And I I guess Meisner makes sense to me that it would... That Steve would like it, like a Marine, you know? I don't know. There's something very... Self torture about Meisner (laughs) that I think is right up Steve's alley. What what do you mean? Like, what were the classes like? They're just rigorous. Dev knows all about this shit, too. Like, the Meisner technique is just physical and emotional and mental, and it's all about pushing yourself and getting out of your comfort zone. And it's just this new thing that actors are doing
1: now, where okay.
2: it's like... I think it's cheating.
1: Method it acting is cheating?
2: So Stanislavski said, a quote from him, I'm reading it right now, said, there is nothing more tedious than an actor's biography. Actors should be banned from talking about themselves. So his the method of being an actor is to remove yourself as an individual and completely become your right, character. right and ceasing to exist as yourself. So that's why like Daniel Day-Lewis and all these guys stay in character throughout the duration of their project and, and stuff like that. Meisner uses external techniques to influence the internal, whereas method is the reverse. It's it, it, the performance comes from the internal and is reflected externally through your gestures, your behavior, inflection, voice, all that stuff. Whereas like Meisner says, you can get into character using costume. Right. And like that can you can build it from there, or like you know if you Meisner's like uh, you know if if you wanna uh, th- cry, think about your pet dying right. when you're a kid. Yeah. Like that's how you trigger the emotion. Whereas method would be like if you need to cry, you need to like believe that you are the person in the situation so intently that you as that person. Yeah. Would how do you cry. describe? So it's a much either of those is cheating. Di- just, what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like ways. it's like using two different.
1: Films I'm, I'm, this really, is a war. I, this has been I a war joking. forever. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, well, I was just joking <laughs> because a lot of a lot of people, some people in the community, and this is a big thing. A difference between theater actors yeah, and film actors. Yeah, very true. Theatrical well, actors are much yeah. more method, and film actors are That's much more. That's very true, Eisner. and. and And it's always been
0: kind of a feud. When I first moved out here, this was a bigger deal than it seems to be now out in L.A., but when I moved out here, nobody gives a shit now. now. But when I moved out here to L.A. and started acting, it was a huge thing of whether or not you were Method, whether or not you were Meisner, what kind of acting are you, like, studying, basically, and I just found it. I went to Anthony Mindel. <laughs> it, it,
1: it, it seemed, I don't know, uh, it, having a debate about either seems a little ridiculous. As long as the performance is good, it's I, don't a street see, war. I don't see it's why it matters. It's a gang war.
0: My thing is better than your thing. And
1: also, like, doesn't it depend on the project too? Like, I mean, can't you like get in method for one project because it makes more sense and then do more meisnery for a different project well, because it makes more the sense? The
2: argument... See, the argument is that it's not the same. The argument is that you can only truly accomplish a, 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 a high level performance by being that person and by doing method, even though the delivery of a Meisner performance might be satisfactory, if that actor had done the same performance through method, it would be even better. That's what the argument is. So I don't know if I agree with that. I kind of agree with you guys and like whatever gets the best result, but it is like, it's seen as kind of like a cop out because it's much easier to do the work of a Meisner performance, then it's much more difficult, challenging, and time committing and psychologically yeah. demanding, emotionally demanding to yeah, do do you nothing. do you leave it on So it, do you yeah, leave that's it on the
0: stage right. or do you take it home? I guess that's the Yeah, and it's it's just more of a nightmare to go home as the character, you know, like Val Kilmer went home as Jim Morrison for a year <laughs> while he was doing the doors and Daniel Day Lewis is Bill the butcher, while he's in the gym, while he's at you know the equinox on Santa Monica. I mean, look at these performances. <laughs> For sure. You know? I mean, but oh yeah, no, they're amazing. Like
2: Jim Carrey and Andy Kaufman, yeah. Man on the Moon. I don't think Jim would have been able to do that if he just he broke turned himself it off when he. Yeah, that's where Jim Carrey
0: broke himself. Do you yeah. know what I mean?
2: Like some of these things. Another one: Johnny Depp in uh, *Fear right. and Loathing*. Like there's these there's these there's demand of the character that is so intense that Meisner would not yeah, suffice right. as a technique. And that's, that's Th- I the mean, argument. Because that- all these badass performances have implemented... Yeah, method. I mean,
1: I think that makes sense for those roles, though. I think there's certain roles that it's just like, it doesn't really need you to go, Method. Right. Like, you-
2: Medea goes to jail, this not... <laughs> right, exactly, <yeah>. exactly, <laughs>
0: exactly. And there were, it's funny, too, because group, this group theater, they were terrifying the government. It was like this... This new acting was coming over from Russia and from Europe. And uh, everybody's getting super culty with it right now in the early 1950s. <laughs> and the government is like, is this communism? Is, is this communism? Is this communism? Because <laughs> it smells like communism. That's that's the government's favorite game. Is this communism? <laughs> is this communism? Welcome
1: <laughs> to this episode of, Is oh, This Communism? communism?
0: No. <laughs> and, <laughs> the answer is always no. And so at the time you had Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, Robert Lewis, and Meisner. Those were like the big ones in New York. Steve studied under Stella Adler, actually. And he also studied under famous German actor Uta Hagen. He studied under a lot of people. He was going around New York really making his rounds. Yeah. So in 1952, Steve gets his first line of dialogue, and he plays a German in this Yiddish play. And his first line of dialogue was actually in German. He said, "Altis is verloid. I don't know how to speak German, but it basically meant all is lost. That was his line. He starts picking up some more plays around town after he does this one. He did a string of plays, uh, Peg of My Heart, The Member of the Wedding, and Two Fingers of Pride, (laughs) which is the name of a play he did. Two Fingers of Pride. I'm sure he was doing that all over town as well. Soon he broke through and made his Broadway debut in 1955 doing a play called A Hat Full of Rain, starring Ben Gazzara. So he's only he was in New York for five years, and he picks up a big Broadway play. And at this time, he was also going to Long Island on the weekends, and he'd race his Harley for money. So Whoa. Yeah, he, he's boxing, racing Harleys, and breaking through on Broadway. <laughs> He got so good at racing his Harley, he would bring home apparently 100 extra bucks a weekend, which is like a grand. Like wow. this guy was going out making a grand at a race and he's just having fun. He's racing his motorcycle. He really finds a love for racing during this time. He actually even considered that might be the way. Maybe he just becomes a professional motorcycle racer. And that was he was kind of thinking about that. You know, like you do. <laughs> do i want to be a broadway actor or do i want to race motorcycles for a living and punch people
1: i feel like again and i this is not to discredit the uh insane amount of talent that you know either you see mcqueen or james cagney or any of these older actors had but man it really feels like back then it was a lot easier just to do shit yeah and just it all be productive and, yeah. and pay you well and and all this stuff like you know yeah. when you didn't have to work a hundred hours to pay rent on a studio apartment. Right. Um, you had time to do a lot more fun shit. Very true. So like for money too. And you know, like being like there was this there was more flexibility back then.
0: Yeah, I mean he his rent is paid by the first GI Bill payment of the month. Yeah. So the rest of the month is just whatever he wants to go do. And yeah. he's going to make that three more times in the month. Yeah.
2: So lesson is, when you're a part of a secret CIA mind <laughs> control experiment, <laughs> make sure you have a few hours of your day blocked off for you time. Yeah, you time.
0: <laughs> Treat yourself, you know? Get on that Harley. <laughs> <laughs> so in late 1955, Steve is now 25 years old, and he is a rising star in the theater. He was put into the summer stock program, and that's basically like the new crop of actors get traded all over these theaters, and they're doing all the plays in town. And he, he got with numerous theaters, and he was... Uh, so basically, he becomes a working actor, which is one of the qualifications you have to meet to get into Lee Strasberg's acting studio. And we all know the acting studio. Rest in peace, James Lipton. You know the actor studio where they would he would interview Casey celebrities. University. and Be like, "What's your what's your favorite curse word?" You know. I have no idea what you're talking about. Really, this is what? Robert De Niro. Oh like, my god, the actor studio. This is like what, the biggest acting it's program in the world. Maybe. What, what do you think? Dad?
2: Inside the actor studio.
0: Yeah, that was uh, the show. Yeah, inside that's the, the, the show. Studio. Yeah. yeah. In the,
2: uh, but James Strasburg. Lipton was the head of the program. It was at Pace University, and it's world renowned for, like James said, like anybody who's anybody has really been through there. Dude, who was it that it was? Somebody was on stage. It might have been Denier. It might have been Pacino or something. But one of the questions from the audience members was Bradley Cooper. Yeah, Bradley Cooper was, and there's a YouTube video of Bradley as a student standing yeah. up and asking like a directorial question, and then like. Ten years later, Bradley's in the chair on stage. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's stuff like that. It's a really magical place. Like, here's just to give you a glimpse of how big this is of a deal. Steve McQueen, there were 2,000 performers who auditioned along with Steve to get into the actor's studio. And Steve McQueen and Martin Landau were the only two to get in that year. Whoa. Two out of 2,000. It's kind of like uh, a Juilliard. Did, yeah. Yeah. did Martin did
1: Landau ever do anything He this? He did quite a lot. <laughs> okay, all right, cool, all right. Martin yeah. Landau <laughs> had quite the career. <laughs> okay,
0: all right. <laughs> he did quite a lot. Yeah, all this right. is why we're doing this show. This all is right, why we're cool. doing this show. This is all good. These are good questions. Landau. These are good questions. No, Landau. I'm glad you don't. I'm, I'm, no I'm honestly, but we have to do a whole episode on it. That's one reason okay. I'm going to have to get off of it soon, cool. but we will do a whole episode on... The Stella Adler, the Lee Strasberg, the you know these big okay. coaches—it's a big deal for actors. I mean, there might yeah. be a lot of people out there who have already tuned out because they do not care who these people are. But so he also it's a learning show—it's a learning show. Damn it, <laughs> this is educational. This is edutainment.
1: Edutainment, edutainment.
0: <laughs> so he also found love around this time. Uh, he met an actress who deserves her own episode of this podcast, named. Ruby Needleham Salvador Adams, or everyone just called her Neil. And Neil, she, her story is so nuts. She grew up in Manila with her mother, who her mother was this famous hula dancer with a stage name Miami. That was her name. And her father was like already married when he married her mom. So that didn't work out. It was this big thing. And they wound up fleeing Manila in 1941 to go to New York when Japan occupied Manila, actually. She fled with her mother. Um, And she became this huge actress in her own right. She, She also is kind of doing the same thing that Steve is doing at this point in her journey. She's, like, getting accepted into these huge schools. She's one of his, you know, circle of people now. Like, she's always around because they're these big actors in theater. Cool She met uh, Steve on the front steps of Carnegie Hall after a play, and if that's not <laughs> if that's not the most theater way to meet someone <laughs> they met on the steps of Carnegie Hall, and it said he came up to her and said, "You're pretty to which she responded, "So are you." <laughs> And she would soon become Steve's first wife. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I wonder how much of these stories are just like a little bit of sugar sprinkled on top and melts <laughs> just a hair bit.
0: Yeah, she said like maybe it, there that was,
2: happened in an alleyway behind Carnegie Hall. Right, like smoking said, a <laughs> cigarette by the dumpster, <laughs> smoking a cigarette right, by the yeah. dumpster
0: behind Carnegie. <laughs> I mean, probably. I imagine the actors after a big show, or you know, they might be on the steps. But that is also where, like, all the ticket holders are. You're probably on the back. Alley. No,
2: they do. I'm just being. I'm being stupid. No, uh, I they, take they it t- they go do a meet and greet in the audience. That's yeah. Hard.
0: Yeah, and they had a whole they had a whole thing. They met on the Carnegie Hall steps. Um, Steve like was hanging out with this dude at the time who would become this huge director. I don't remember his name, but apparently the director was like, "Come on, like we got to get to the bar." And then they met again later at a restaurant where they were both having dinner with like huge fucking people, and that's where they started to really talk to each other, you know. Uh, but. Steve kinda got to this point in his career where he's doing theater. He is he's conquered. He made it in the actors studio. And some of his people at the actor studio and he himself started to think like I kinda wanna do film. Like I wanted to, I want to be part of these these big moving pictures and get off the stage <laughs> for a bit. <laughs> I could see that. I mean, if you break into Broadway and you get into the actors studio, I want to be a movie star. Yeah. Like I it- love theater.
1: But I want to be... It's And it's got to seem like a lot less work. Yeah. You know, you don't have to do the same... You don't have to do the whole... F- production every night three nights very a week true. or whatever it's a lot less to memorize up front very true like yeah probably a lot easier on your vocal cords because you don't have to project to the back all the time yeah like yeah it, it seems like a, a cushier gig to be a movie star than be a broadway star well it's funny because <laughs> one of the reasons he wanted to be a movie star
0: is because he really looked up to james cagney ah yeah he said that james cagney was like one of his his big inspirations. There was Cagney, of course. He loved Humphrey Bogart, Spencer Tracy, John Wayne, but he said James Cagney was, and it's really interesting to me because his course is so much like Cagney. It's so similar. Yeah. It's so similar. He How was much, in a
1: circus. He was on yeah. Broadway. Movie star. How much of James Cagney's uh, like life story did did he know at this time? Probably. Would he... I
0: would imagine a guy like him knew quite a lot about him, cool. but maybe not. I mean, maybe at the time. You know, Cagney has kind of just gotten out of acting. Uh, I don't know. Maybe at the time. I know he studied his acting, though. He would okay. study Cagney in these films and, like, yeah. really try to yeah. oh, be Cagney. Oh, yeah, because
1: this is, like, around the 50s. Cagney's like, it, Cagney took a break in the 50s, I yeah, guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This okay. was right
0: around the Cag break. Okay. Um, pretty near his retirement, right. you know, after the 30s and 40s. But he, he did a bunch of stuff in the 50s, but did, this um, was, like, the later Cag days. Did these guys ever meet? Maybe I don't know. Uh, I would imagine at some point they cross paths. I would imagine James Cagney met Steve McQueen at some point before he died, and Steve McQueen died before Cagney. So right, yeah. So yeah, Steve wants to be in the moving pictures, and he packs up and he moves to L.A., he moves to Echo Park, looking for acting work somewhere in front of a camera. <laughs> uh, he also he began working out like crazy. Okay. He, he runs five miles a day. Holy He's lifting shit. weights. He's getting ready, you know, uh, and he's smoking three packs of cigarettes a day to lose weight. Uh, He also discovers a true passion for the devil's lettuce while he's in L.A. He <laughs> starts smoking weed every single day, they say. Hell, he, hell yeah. <laughs> he's smoking weed every day and running five miles a day? Yes, he's like running five miles with a joint in his hand. Bro,
2: where was this motherfucker for the poster of normal back then? Like, Jesus. Like, break for those real. hippie stereotypes. Yeah,
0: man. Seriously. This guy, yeah. The former Marine who saved five Marines from a sinking ship and runs five miles a day, becoming a movie star and he's smoking weed. I think it's going to be okay. I think this weed thing might not be as bad as everybody's saying it is. Mm -hmm. So 1956, um, he books a big gig, like huge gig for him. And he also, he got married this year. He marries Neil and books this big gig And the big gig was a two-part Westinghouse Studio One television program uh, presentation entitled The Defenders that aired on CBS in early 1957. And this was a huge break for Steve. He played a guy accused of murder, and his lawyers are William Shatner and Ralph Bellamy. (laughs) And so like, it's it's this big two-part thing that's going on on CBS – And everybody sees Steve McQueen. He's on every television set, you know, in 1957.
2: With the exception of Steve McQueen, that fucking, that sounds horrible. Could you imagine William Shatner as an attorney? (laughs) (laughs) How long are those fucking opening remarks going to take to get through?
0: (laughs) He's like, my client did not. Murder.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The jury's like, you better fucking talk normal or we're just going to convict him on that alone. Everybody in the
0: courtroom's just falling asleep. Yeah, he did kind of like a 12 Angry Men. Like, that was his first thing. It was this television court drama thing, which is pretty cool. cool, yeah. Yeah, and he's a murderer, so, like, you get a cool role, you know. His new wife, Neil, she has a manager named Hilly Elkins, and she doesn't know it at the time, but Hilly... Hilly kind of took her on before Hilly was really big, and then Hilly would become this huge manager while she was under her, basically. And Hilly saw Steve on TV and told Neil, I want to book your husband. I want to rep your husband, Steve. He seems great. you know." And so the, she he signed on with her, and now he's got this manager. He's got this TV show. He's in L.A. running five miles a day. He's doing it. He is, like, living his dream right now. And she booked him on a movie immediately called Someone Up There Likes Me alongside Paul Newman and director Robert Wise, who <laughs> Robert Wise, the director, referred to Steve as just a kook in a beanie. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: He's
1: wearing beanies now? He's wearing beanies and I, smoking weed. I can't picture Steve McQueen wearing a beanie. I know, man.
0: It's like the the, the, the 1957, and Steve's over here just, you know, Living his He's la, life. truly ahead of his
2: time. People yeah. didn't really wear beanies <laughs> until the '60s. <laughs> yeah, was probably
0: Robert Wise was like anyone who wears a beanie is a kook. So <laughs> this guy is, yeah. And he, this was a Paul Newman thing that he did, and he and Paul Newman became kind of like rivals in the industry. They loved each other, but they hated each other. And they were rivals. And we'll get into it, but also Steve was not a very good friend to anyone,
3: <laughs> to be oh, honest. Really?
0: Steve just wasn't the greatest guy to hang out with. Um, I'll talk about it, but he just had a real dark streak about him. I mean, it makes sense, you know. This is like former kid gang guy. Yeah, I mean you what, know? was he just
1: kind of a dick or like he what he was kind of
0: a dick. He yeah. kind of would like to get on your bad side. That's like he and then you would have like a feud with him for years. That would just basically end in, like, a beer, you know? But he, I think he liked to fight with people. I just think he liked to be at odds with
1: someone. He's just addicted to chaos? Yeah,
0: basically. And, I mean, I imagine people like Paul Newman especially, like, if I'm at odds with Paul Newman, I f- he's probably feeling a little bit like he's competing with him. All right. Now, you is,
1: know? Uh, is this all related to Randy Newman? <laughs>
0: no. And uh, just think Brad Pitt of his time. That's okay. Paul Newman. Right. <laughs> and Steve McQueen is, like... Brad Pitt <laughs> <Of his time. laughs> two, these are two Brad Pitts going up against each other there somebody up there likes me and then another movie right afterwards called never love a stranger with John Drew Barrymore and just like that he becomes a movie star like he is he's he they gave him a lead role his third thing out gave him a lead role in the blob about a flesh eating alien amoeba the Blob's so great the blobs ridiculous um i'm sure have you heard of the blob at least
1: Uh, no okay gotcha the blob
0: was like it it was a big time b movie basically it was a b i mean you're being generous (laughs) Uh, yeah for sure and that it it was a perfect thing for him to like get his first lead role on you know okay it's like not not a whole lot of pressure. Don't it was don't the, use your Meisner here. Okay. You know? <laughs> no. It was
2: like the I don't know Sharknado of its era. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's a perfect way of <laughs> okay. putting it. Sharknado. Yeah. It's like and big, but it's ridiculous. So it's,
1: I mean, so like, so I can't imagine a, an actor coming out of Sharknado ever being taken seriously, though. You know, like
0: some dude. Did
1: he have an issue coming out of this being taken as a serious? No, actor?
0: not really. And at the time, it was a little bit different. I mean, if the most important thing is it was his first lead role. I you know, and at this like his manager Hilly, it doesn't matter what the movie is, he just led a whole movie. You yeah. know, and it, it got made, it came out, it's in theaters, people are buying tickets to it. Yeah, there's no straight to D V D movies back right. then. No, not straight really to T V really. Yeah. And he also, you know, he did he had done two movies before this who were they were not B movies. These right. were like big dramas, you know, and stuff. And yeah, so when he gets The Blob, he's he's moving. He's already got some heat behind him. And Hilly got a – he got a, she got him a string of work on television, mostly westerns. His career, honestly, is a lot like Rick Dalton yeah. in Once Upon a Time. Okay. Like, it's a lot like that. He just winds up – he does a lot of, like, films and then a B or C movie, and then he'll do a lot of TV, you okay. know. And Steve, honestly, he was kind of an exception to the, ru- the rule here – And he was one of the first actors ever credited with doing television and film. Because at this time, there was a real divide. You were either film or television or commercials. Nothing in between. We don't really bleed over over here. But Mm -hmm. Steve comes out to L.A. He did Broadway. And he's he's doing film and television. Cool. Guess what, guys? What's up?
2: Rick Dalton. Was based on a real life series called Wanted Dead or Alive. Oh, yeah, that's starring... Steve McQueen. Steve fucking McQueen. Yeah, yeah. Ah.
0: I Rick Dalton was yeah. based heavily on Steve McQueen. Okay. No doubt about it. Pretty
2: much like, you know, the, the Quentin's pretty much saying directly, Steve. maybe not Steve McQueen, but Steve McQueen in that show.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, bounty Law. I, the whole time I was watching this, I was thinking about Bounty Law. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, we're going to get into it, but we're going to talk about the movie ranch where Charlie Manson and all of them lived. Steve was a uh, big part of note. that.
2: Everyone should go buy Quentin's book that he wrote. I don't know the uh, title of it, but I was going to buy it and read it too. It takes place where um, it shows the epilogue after Once Upon a Time. Oh, wow. So it starts where Once Upon a Time ends, and, and he goes through the career of Rick Dalton and what happens to Rick in uh, What's-His-Face. Oh, that's and amazing. Wow. Character. Oh, yeah, I'll really? definitely yeah, yeah. pick that really, up. That's awesome. Really good.
0: Oh, cool. Very cool. I'll definitely be picking that up. Yes. Yeah, Tarantino sweet. doesn't miss, man. He doesn't miss. <laughs> he likes those feet, but he doesn't miss. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah. So hey, don't miss the feet.
0: <laughs> yeah. So like you were saying, Deb, in 1958, Steve is cast as a regular on a TV show. Huge deal for his career. Uh, he 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 gets some help here. He's got an old motorcycle racing buddy who is now a TV actor named Robert Culp, um, and that kind of explains it too. When he was like, I think when he would do these races, he was also networking in a lot of ways. Probably not on purpose, but he's meeting a lot of people. You know. And his old buddy Robert Culp is doing this TV show called Trackdown and recommends Steve as the role opposite him. And they pick him up. They love Steve, they see they saw his work. They saw his TV show, they saw his films. And they cast Steve as the bounty hunter, Josh Randall, who appeared on and off this show for ninety-eight episodes. So he picked up a big one. And they filmed all ninety-eight of these episodes of Trackdown. At the Iverson Movie Ranch, that would soon become a bunch of other ranches. It had previously been the Paramount Ranch. Now it's the Iverson Movie Ranch. But at some point, it would become Spawn Ranch, otherwise known as the home to Charlie Manson. Whoa. Yeah. And he's, Steve's like, again, it was like very once upon a time in Hollywood scene where Brad Pitt goes to visit his old buddy that used to own this ranch. You know, we used to do movies out here. That was Steve. Steve was always at this ranch shooting, track down the Western. Yeah, kind He like lives out here, basically. Right. You know, he's he's always on the ranch, being yeah. a part of things. And so
1: then he he went back there at some point, and the Manson's just moved in. He was yeah, like, Yeah, I mean, well, ba- what is this? Who are they?
0: Yeah, basically, I don't know if he went back or he just knew about. Everybody kind of knew the ranch mm-hmm. had become Spawn Ranch, and it had become like this weird Charlie Manson thing at the time. You know, he,
1: he, um, he ever run You
2: know Manson who person? else? You know who else was uh, a part of CIA mind control experiments? (laughs) (laughs) Charlie motherfucking Manson.
3: Manson. really?
0: Yeah, it all comes together. Oh, my God.
2: So Charles Manson's doctor was the same doctor of Jack Ruby. And this doctor was the guy who led the... Uh, a clinic in San Francisco Where Operation Midnight Climax Was being implemented Midnight So this Climax doctor so w- uh, Would constantly get Charlie out of jail Before he went to Los Angeles wow. Like Charlie was in jail And he got out on bail And he did a bunch of shit And kept fucking up And he should have been thrown back in jail But the CIA Caused him to not only be let out of jail But like gave him drugs and resources And told him to like go to LA and start a call
1: Yeah and he wrote for the Beach Boys. That's true. <laughs> um, wait, so did, um, did Steve and Manson um, ever like physically cross paths? Did they ever meet each they other? They
0: almost did. Uh, <laughs> no, well, I guess Charlie wasn't there that night. But I, wait, wait, hold on. Give me a bit. Give oh, me, okay. I'm going to get oh, into, we're into that. we're not there yet. Yeah, okay. We're not there yet. Okay. Cool. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> I just wanted to tell you he's on the Iverson movie ranch. Okay. You know? So in June of 1959, he and Neil had a daughter named Terry... And this is the year that Steve also got a call from the man himself, old Frankie Sinatra. And Sinatra is setting up his war biopic movie called Never So Few with Peter Lawford, Charles Bronson, all these like huge 50s megastars, basically 50s, 60s megastars. And he also had, he had cast Sammy Davis Jr. in this movie, but. Sammy <laughs> Sammy went on a radio show and kinda spilled the beans about like what a pain in the ass it is to film with Frank. And so Frank <laughs> fired him for doing that, which is the most pain in the ass thing that Frank could have done. Frank, <laughs> Frank Sinatra was not good to work with. He really? was a he was a nightmare on set. Like Damn. always throwing shit, angry, not fun. That's too bad. Well, this was later
2: in life, Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I remember yeah. his prime when Rise was in the forties. Yeah, when he was wasted so he and was throwing stuff and at people when he was younger. This <laughs> is like This yeah. is like drunk and cocaine fueled Frank Sinatra. Yeah. He's got yeah. a little thick. He probably's doing his residency, you know, somewhere around this time or later in Vegas. Right.
0: Know? Yeah. Yeah, he fires he, he fires Sammy Davis Junior and he calls Steve McQueen to take Sammy's role. <laughs> <laughs>
2: which is oh my God.
0: not a lot of That's fun horrible. for Steve here, I would imagine. Um, I don't know. He might not have given a shit, but I kind of I would have been very uncomfortable taking over, for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's like, it's like, well, Al Jolson wasn't free, so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, you want
0: to take this role from this black actor who already has a hard enough time out here? You want to make it a little bit harder for him? Jewish. Roll Frankie.
2: Jewish <laughs> black actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, this was not a fun role to step into. It might have even been a thing, honestly. I mean, I didn't see this anywhere, but... Frank might have gone to other people first, and they all said no. You know, Steve might have just been the guy to be like, sure, I'll do it. And
2: Steve McQueen is like the heel in wrestling. <laughs> He's like the Roman Reigns, always, always the bad guy. Always got a
0: grift going. Always got a grift going. But Steve did get to kind of live his dreams on this one. I know being in a war film is so fun, and Steve loved it too. He got to drive around fast in a Jeep shoot Tommy guns his character carried around a switchblade so he was like really right at home with this role and he's doing this huge film with Frank Sinatra and Peter Lawford it is he's living high he is he's living it up right now and this movie made him one of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time this thing comes out everyone loves Steve McQueen now he's becoming like a household name you know He's um. Everybody's starting to get to know this guy, and he scores the role on The Magnificent
1: Seven. this scores... a movie that they've remade a hundred times? Yeah, okay, yes, yeah. yeah. The
0: Magnificent Seven.
1: He was on the original one.
0: Yeah, he was on the original one, and this is the true beginning of Steve McQueen, and if that wasn't the original Magnificent Seven, we'll edit it out, but I think that was the original <laughs> one. I don't think it was a remake at that point, but anyway, this is the true beginning of Steve McQueen. This is where he goes from like bopping around on TV being lower down on the call sheet to now he is Steve McQueen. You won't you probably won't find many pieces of work after this where Steve is not at least second lead or mm-hmm. the star, you know. He kind of does do that. you think he's a
1: household name at this point like do most people know Steve McQueen? Yeah, at this point
0: definitely. At this point he is I'm trying to think of who to compare him to right now. Like
2: I mean, at this point, all of the seven of the Magnificent Seven are probably household
0: names. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he got chosen for the Magnificent Seven because all seven of those guys had names. Okay. You know, yeah, they yeah. put together seven of your favorite actors. And okay. so at this point, everyone, if you, you might not know him, but mm-hmm. most people do. He is definitely big enough to where people are seeking him out to be a name in their film at this point. It was a funny story from *Magnificent Seven, Too, his co-star and fellow circus veteran, Western legend Yul Brynner, is in this thing. And Yul Yul Brynner, Yul Brynner, really? yes. And <laughs> and Yul Brynner fucking hated Steve. He said that Steve oh was God, a scene. So He's he was a scene stealer. And basically, he accused Steve of like when he was supposed to just be standing there being quiet, he'd be like cleaning his gun or tipping his hat or like he was always doing something you know and Yul Brenner's like it's Yul Brenner time like you stand there quietly look handsome I'm gonna do my thing just don't move <laughs> <laughs> and Steve McQueen was putting in you know He's putting in work, man. That's and you'll you'll knew. Like this is how you make stars. You become a star, you don't just stand there. Yeah. You gotta be doing something. Doing something cool, man. Like <laughs> twirling your guns, you know, smoking a cigar. <laughs> 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 and so in nineteen sixty, with his growing success, he's blowing up. Uh, he formed his own production company at the time called Scuderia Condor Enterprises. He was smoking a lot of weed at the time. There's Scudera. no doubt. Scuderia. what is Scuderia? Wait a minute, wait Scuderia. A
2: minute. S- say that yeah, say that title one more Scu- time. Please.
0: Scu- <laughs> Scuderia Condor Enterprises. What does that mean? S C U D E R I A. I'm gonna Google it right now. Oh, it's a it's a Ferrari.
1: Is that copyright infringement?
0: He did change it later on. It's a Ferrari thing.
2: But, like, where's the condor? <laughs> what is the condor? Like, area is the racing division of Ferrari. That makes sense. But maybe he's like, uh, I don't know. I just like condors. Yeah. Condors are cool, too. I took, you know.
0: I think Ferrari
2: it, and condor and that's what I got it. I
0: think it's weed.
1: <laughs> condor is the type of weed.
0: Yeah, yeah. He called it Scuderia Condor Enterprises. Yeah, I guess it's like a, it's a Ferrari thing. I think there's a marine thing in there somewhere. I don't know. But he he, he starts this up in nineteen sixty and then he ran that until nineteen sixty three and he and his family moved to Solar Drive in 1963, so he renamed it from Scuderia Condor to just Solar Productions, like Solar Drive. And he actually uh, he produced a lot a lot of the films that he would star in. Solar Productions was the production company in some way. Okay. He would always get his it, Cagney did the same thing. Yeah. Cagney started sense. his own company and it got absorbed by Warner Brothers. You know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if I'm gonna star in this thing, you got to get my company five points and we'll do some producing as well you know Mm. i think it's really smart i mean and it was not a lot of not a lot of actors do this but not a lot of actors do this really Mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of things most actors just want to act you know so for him to start his own company it says a lot about him and it makes sense to me that steve mcqueen would do this
1: yeah for sure um it's uh, still relatively early-ish in his career, too, it feels like. Yeah, Because um, yeah. at this point, the Great Escape hasn't happened and stuff, right? Like, that's not... Right, no, okay. yeah, this
0: is very early. This is right after Magnificent Seven, basically. This is, like, what he's coming off of, you mm-hmm. know, when he starts his production company. And in December 1960, the start of the 60s, one of the greatest decades in American history... <laughs> I say that sarcastically... Uh, <laughs> In, ni- in December 1960, they had their son. Did something bad happened in the sixties. Oh yeah, we'll get into it okay. on Vietnam history, the history of bad wars. <laughs> well, Did we do a bad thing? A couple of those. Couple of those.
2: <laughs> that could be that could be a, a returning series. War <laughs>
0: war history, the history of war. It's coming. It's coming. We'll we'll have to do some the penguin wars. The penguin wars, dude. The penguin. Wars. <laughs> the brand wars. MK Ultra wars. <laughs> in December 1960, they had their son Chad. Uh, a year and a half after they had Terry, so they were wasting no time. You know, they, they one kid after the other. Let's have these two. These are the only two kids he'd ever have, actually. Chad and Terry, his son and daughter, um, and then his his grandson. Oh God, I can't remember his name, but his grandson is something McQueen, and he was in like the Vampire Diaries and shit these days. Really? Yeah, a lot of his offspring oh, he's, carried it on.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, the Terry or Chad act? Did they. I, the, I don't they know. I don't know much about pictures?
0: Terry and Chad. I don't know much about them, to be honest. They didn't say a lot in the book. It was very 1960s. They were like, and then he had kids, and you'll <laughs> never hear about that again. <laughs> he had kids and got real busy. <laughs> and uh, so in 63, this is when he does The Great Escape. Hollywood's fictional depiction of the true story of a historic mass escape from a World War II POW camp, Stalag Luft III. And it was important to him, by the way, that everyone know, he has that big motorcycle jump scene. Uh, He did all of his own stunts except for that one. There was the big jump scene he told Johnny Carson, uh, because Johnny Carson and everybody thought that he had just done it on his own. And he said that due to insurance purposes, they wouldn't let him do that big jump scene. So the guy on the bike in that scene is actually this badass guy named Bud Eakins. That was the guy on the bike in that. But Steve actually did a thing where Bud was on the bike, on the hero bike, and Steve is on one of the stunt bikes chasing him in one scene. So there's like a scene of this the great escape where if you look really hard, you'll see Steve McQueen chasing himself,
1: basically. funny.
0: It seemed like a fun movie to, yeah. to film, for sure. And if you haven't seen that... I have not. Go see it. The I Great will... Escape. It is one of the greatest films ever made. Charles Bronson killed it in that movie as well. It's great. Um, oh, my God. They, again, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, that, that joke. The
1: scene where they superimposed his face yeah. over him. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Rick Dalton had been the original... Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was, uh, if Steve had turned it down, he almost, would. that was the whole thing. And that was,
0: that's also a joke, because Steve turned down, like, some of, Steve's career, he turned down more big movies than he got. Really? Yeah, I'll get into it at the end here, but Steve turned down, like, every big fucking role in the 60s and 70s. Why? Uh, He just, he was very picky. He was very picky about what he did. Interesting. Um, After, like, he did bullet and he said he never wanted to do another cop movie after that never wanted Mm -hmm. to play a cop again so he didn't he just got very picky he got very picky about what he was doing and Mm -hmm. he was supposed to be like apocalypse now like he was supposed to play martin sheen's part rambo he was going to be rambo at some point like it was all these roles he just kind of turned him down
1: i mean that good good for him for like having the freedom to like do what he wants to do, and also good for these other actors, because it probably made a lot of yeah. people's careers yeah. that Steve McQueen wasn't starring in literally everything. In literally
0: everything, exactly. Yeah. yeah, he goes through the 60s just banging out hits, left mm-hmm. and right. Cincinnati Kid, Steve plays this hot gambler called the Cincinnati Kid, mm-hmm. and... In the Cincinnati Kid he stars alongside some uh some Cagsters, some old Cagney people. Joan Blondell and Edward G. Robinson nice. were in the Cincinnati Kid. Cool. And like you said, I don't know if he ever met Cagney in person, but that had to be such a huge thing in his brain where he looked yeah. up at Cagney so hard and now he's in this movie with like, you know, nineteen thirties Warner Brothers gang gangster star Edward yeah. G. Robinson and Cagney's the most movies he ever did was with John Blondell as his co-star, and uh, Steve's in the mix. Steve's mm-hmm. really getting in the mix here. Um, so much in the mix. On March twenty-first, nineteen sixty-seven, three days before his thirty-seventh birthday, he became the one hundred and fifty-third star to put his handprints and footprints on the forecourt of Grauman's Chinese Theater, and so he gets his uh, he gets his handprints and footprints
1: put in there. Nice. There you go. Yeah. So I have a question about those handprints and footprints. Um, They swap them out every once in a while, right? Like, the ones that are there can't be the only people who have ever gotten their handprints and footprints. Huh. That patio's not that big.
0: So no, they never replace them. They just shuffle them around. Really? Yeah.
1: So there's only like 50. There's not There's that two, many.
2: A little more than 200. Ah. There's 200 of those there? That patty was not <laughs> that said, big. <laughs> it started in 1927 feet. when Hollywood's original couple, uh, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, yeah. placed their hands and feet in wet cement. Since then, it's become a thing for stars to do the same thing. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and they just shuffle them around. They don't remove them or anything. Huh. Yeah, so if you're there, you're I mean, there.
2: Groucho Marx, uh, John Wayne. I mean, they also have, like, fucking R2-D2 <laughs> trademarks. Yeah. Like, you yeah, know, I think a star is a little bit more prestigious
0: than definitely handprints. Definitely. I'd say so, too. Yeah, but we'll have to go visit Steve's Handprints and Footprints here soon. Go to the Chinese (laughs) Theater and see his his stuff. Uh, He also picked up a nomination for an old naked Louis B. Meyer statue around this time. (laughs) Otherwise known as an Oscar, for those of you who didn't listen to uh, the Best Picture episode. But he had a role in a Navy War drama called Sand Pebbles. And uh, he got nominated for Best Actor for that. Didn't win. No, nope, didn't win.
1: Wait, he never won an Oscar. No. In, in the Oscar.
0: Mm. He got two nominations throughout his career, but he didn't win one. Hmm. But you know, whatever. He got nominated. It's yeah. good enough. And he got his hands and feet. I'd rather my hands and feet and buy buy Grumman's than an Oscar, anyway.
3: <laughs> so, <laughs> but nobody um, cares
0: about sand pebbles, because we are going to get into the movie of the '60s, in my opinion.
1: Bullet. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I was literally just about to ask, are you gonna go into details about Bullet? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Bullet This was like
0: a culmination of Steve's career leads to him doing Bullet in nineteen sixty eight. And this is as it is as nineteen sixty eight as films could possibly get. It has everything that I want in my film made in the sixties. It's got taxi cabs, payphones, phone books. Guys checking mail at a hotel, detectives wearing suits and writing in little books with like pencils and just sixties movies, man, <laughs> you know there's no fucking ipad
3: <laughs>
0: there's no fucking iPad around here, and this was this movie just to show you how old it was, like this movie discussed the brand new mumps vaccine at the time <laughs> that's how sixties this thing was, and i I could not comfortably tell you the plot of this movie. I, I it is so all over the fucking place. Oh uh, really? I just know it made me want to go out and like rent a car with cash and drive under a runway, you know, <laughs> get on a plane, you know, like you used to be able to do. It's like the and,
1: original Fast and Furious movie. Yeah,
0: yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> it was like off the rails, insane. The plot doesn't really matter. You're yeah. going for the vibes and the car chase. Exactly. Okay. Yes.
0: Yeah. Robert Duval is in it. And I forgot, he's, dude, he's been old since, like, 1960. Robert Duvall was born old. I think he was one of those. Um, this was a few years before he did The Godfather. And Steve plays Frank, a.k.a. Bullet, but spelled with an I instead of an E, by the way. Um, he's been tasked with protecting a star witness in a Senate trial against the corrupt San Francisco political machine known as the Organization. And the main bad dude from the organization is Johnny Ross from Chicago, and Johnny might kill him, and he's after him, and it was like I said, it was nuts. It was nuts, but it's some of the greatest car chases to have ever been filmed were in Bullet. Steve said uh, Bullet was his favorite film of his career. That's what he would he would reference that Mm -hmm. as you know, like when the when the James Liptons of the world would ask him what his favorite role was, he would say bullet was his thing
1: and he did all the driving himself yeah
0: he did a lot of the driving himself not all of it but a lot of it he got to he, he really got to get his driving on there's some scenes where i mean literally it's his you know the the most famous clip and i can see it in my head is him like with his face out of the window burning rubber and going up this road in san francisco and that was all actually him i mean it was very cool it's very like some close ups on Steve while he's doing his car thing, you know. And this, he was, it was in his wheelhouse. Uh, if it had been up to Steve, he would have done every stunt in every movie. If it, <laughs> if it involved cars or motorcycles, he was probably talking to the director about just doing it himself, like most of these movies. He's
2: like a non insane Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Yeah.
0: yeah, we've been talking about that a lot, man. These guys back in these days did their own stunts. Uh, Tom is great, but he was not the first guy to do it. That is for damn sure. But um, after Bullet, he wrapped up the 1960s with the Thomas Crown Affair. That is one that I haven't seen, but I heard it's really good. He also, he wrapped up the 1960s with a brush with death in August 1969. What happened? Steve was invited over one night to, uh, to a house by his friend, Hollywood hairdressing legend, Jay Sebring was one of his really good friends at the time. And he was invited to a dinner at Sharon Tate's house one night. And according to Steve's wife at the time, Neil, uh, Steve did not go to that dinner. He didn't make it because he found a girl at a bar and took her home instead. Whoa. (laughs) Or went back to her place.
1: (laughs) Was this the night that uh, they were murdered? Yep.
0: That was the night they were murdered. Wow. Steve was supposed to be there. And not only that, Steve was supposed to be there, and the cops, when they arrested Charles Manson, he had his, like, kill list, list Uh of people that he wanted dead. Steve was on that list. Wow. Steve was on his fucking kill list. Wow. And was supposed to be at the Sharon Tate house that night. And instead, he wound up cheating on his wife with some bar girl. Whoa. Yeah. And she said that. She was the one who told that story, not him. She's like, no, he went home with some fucking girl, and he he did not get murdered like I wish he had. (laughs) (laughs) But that was the night Charles Manson's cult broke in into Tate's home and killed her, Sebring, what was she, how Is that see? like
1: the only time he cheated on his wife or was this a No, no, no. Oh, this was an ongoing thing. Oh, okay. He, cool, cool. he uh he was not I mean, very not faithful. Cool.
0: <laughs> Steve was not uh he was not a real married guy, that's okay. for sure. Yeah. And <laughs> Yeah, and so Steve after this, he never went anywhere without a gun ever again. There's a
2: bunch of pictures of him just like Pointing it at nothing and like, you know, looking like Hunter S. Thompson with some like big ass. Yeah, I'm starting to shit.
1: see why him and Hunter S. Thompson might have been friends. He
0: would shoot stuff in his house. <laughs> he would
1: pull the trigger on this
0: gun in his house every now and then. Why? And just like shoot out a light and shit.
1: Because uh, these these guys cause. are nuts. These
0: guys are all fucking crazy. You become an actor for a reason. It's because your brain's not right. You know, just like all of us. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I mean, I guess like I guess a house. It's not like you can actually shoot your neighbor. Like if an apartment building. You know? Yeah, like, yeah. If you're an apartment, you just you shoot out a light. You're hitting your neighbor. Or the next door, yeah.
0: They say if you oh. get too close to Stephen Queen's grave, he'll shoot at you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: awesome. I want that to be on my gravestone. Don't get too close, I'll shoot at you. Shots will be fired. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he went, he got He got a little crazy after this. He, he starts carrying around this gun. Uh, his wife said he also like spirals into cocaine and booze and acid. And women. Those, Whoa. That's,
2: that's not good comedy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he
0: basically just uh, this. I mean, he was he was already kind of going off the rails a little bit with the booze. But after he, I mean, his friends all got killed. He was supposed to get killed. He was on a murder list, for God's sakes. He just goes a little bit crazy. Yeah, he, he really gets deep, heavy into it. You know, yeah.
1: You don't. You can't really blame him. <laughs> no. Yeah. And Neil, so, Neil eventually for, leaves. Right, yeah. as I imagine she would. Yeah. As I imagine she should. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a great for environment your kids for kids. Out here. There,
2: <laughs> don't mix cocaine and acid. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's do them separately. And if you are going to do either, don't have firearms anywhere in your vicinity. That's good
0: advice. So in 1970, yeah, Neil does the right thing, and she splits with Steve. She's getting out of there. Uh, He's getting a little crazy. She does the right thing. She does the right thing. She (laughs) takes the kids, and she gets the fuck out of there. And it probably had something to do with, you know, the string of affairs or maybe the fact that he's like shooting stuff in the house now while he's on acid. (laughs) One of those things she she can't put up with anymore. So she (laughs) just out of of things. (laughs) One or all of those things. (laughs) So, yeah, Steve starts off the 1970s like a gun in a holster, cocaine in his head, a bad divorce a poorly received movie that he did called Le Mans it was this race movie i really liked the movie but nobody liked it at the time they redid that movie too yeah they oh yeah that's right they did they did i like the Steve McQueen one man then now i know he was all fucked up doing that shit he's probably drunk driving on that movie but <laughs> <laughs> which is he not He was small.
2: probably doing bumps off the barrel of his fucking Oh my
0: god, man. He went full Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> That's for sure.
2: So what like, years is this really quick to refresh? This is me. 1970. What, like, this is here. the beginning of 70? the 70s. Yeah.
0: He got to work with director Sam Peckinpah, which is a fucking legend. Like this is one of the baddest ass directors ever in history and Steve gets this role with him. This would be like um this would be like getting a role. This would be like working for Quentin Tarantino, in my opinion. Like I think this would be this thing where like you want to do a Scorsese movie, you want to do a, a Tarantino movie. He did a Peck and Paw film. Like this okay. is basically that. And uh, this was again with a leading role. This was The Getaway. That he was in. And he met his future wife, Allie McGraw, on this film. He would wind up marrying her later on. But she is an actress in this film. And he he's, he gets right to work. He, he meets a new wife. He's got this big role. And he followed this with a very physically demanding role as well uh, as a Devil's Island prisoner in 1973's Papillon. And Steve actually jumped off a cliff in this movie. There's like a big jumping off a cliff scene, and he actually just did it. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool too. He probably wanted to do it on a motorcycle, and they were like, <laughs> Steve, that makes no sense. I don't know why you'd have a motorcycle in your prison cell. You know. <laughs>
3: cool.
2: It's time for an ad! Hi folks, I'm
0: Tyler Armantrout. I'm Christopher Whedon. I'm Zach Meck. And I'm Jerry Nash. And And we're we're the History History Boys. Boys. And we're kicking your door down with a Bluetooth speaker and an 18-pack of beer, ready to start party. It's my favorite history podcast on all the internet, not just because I'm on it, but because I listen to every episode full blast in my house drives my wife up the
1: wall. This is the history podcast for all you cool kids that sat in the back of the classroom. That's right. We are a comedy history podcast, or a history comedy podcast podcast, any which way you look at it. We are the History Boys. That is spelled B O I C for those counting. And we are found anywhere you find your podcasts. Love you, bye. So the year is
0: 1973. Steve's 43 years old now, and this is the year that Steve was actually a pallbearer in Bruce Lee's funeral.
1: What? what? yeah what? <laughs> yeah how did he know bruce lee Were
0: so, they buddies? steve was a black belt on top of everything <laughs> put in a harley rev right there for sure in post oh steve also God. had a steve had a black belt he trained he did not train with bruce lee personally his son actually did chad trained <laughs> with bruce lee when he was young and uh his son also trained with chuck norris by the way <laughs> he trained but uh Steve trained uh, in Tang Soo Do with ninth-degree black belt Pat E. Johnson. Big famous black belt back in the day. Yeah, so Steve, on top of everything, was also a black belt, by the way. Just to keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, this was also the year he married Ally McGraw.
1: What question? Did did he ever do uh, martial arts in any movies? Or oh, yeah. Did he just knew it, it for fun. I oh. mean,
0: he was usually playing it cool, but like the more action he wants, he was definitely doing it. Okay. I don't think he ever used his like kung fu skills, but he would just like punch dudes, you know. <laughs> it's cool. like how some movies you don't bring your acting method, some movies you don't bring your actual kung fu. We just <laughs> need you to punch a guy in the face. <laughs>
1: so he just learned it for fun. He just wanted to know. Yeah, yeah okay. just cuz
0: he's a badass and cool. you know, also kind of a crazy person. So. Did, did
1: him and Bruce Lee ever spar? Do you know? Oh,
0: no. I know what you're talking about, though. The once upon a time scene. Uh,
1: I mean, kind of, but more friendly than that. Yeah. Like, I, did they ever just like. Maybe. Friend, just I bet they did. Friendly you know, bouts. I bet they, they did. If they went
2: to the same gym or trained together, they probably did. Because. Yeah. Cool. You would. It's kind of like having a drink with somebody. In that world.
1: So, like when you go to jujitsu,
2: yeah, and you're just hanging around, you're like, let's roll together, let's spar, let's go a few rounds. And you like get a feel for how somebody fights, you like really get to know somebody in those aspects. And Bruce was apparently such a, held martial arts to such a high standard that he would want to probably see, all right, you pansy actor, what do you got? Let me see what you think. So, if they did cross paths in a gym or or were at the same place, same time, it probably happened. But I'm curious love- now, because of this thing from Quentin, how does Steve, Mc- Steve McQueen approach this, I'm assuming, with, I- I'm going to do stunts, I might as well learn the real thing. You know, right. if I'm going to be a race car, if I'm going to do stunt driving, I want to be a race car driver. You know, like, yeah. kind of almost a method approach. So I'm I'm curious to see if there was a relationship or respect from Bruce to Steve. Whereas, like, if, if it's true what Quentin said, then Bruce, Bruce didn't respect stunt people because they weren't doing it full out they weren't really getting hit they weren't really training they were only doing enough for the camera just enough so he always thought of them as lesser than but if steve mcqueen was really a a disciplined student of fucking black belt then he just that totally changes things that's actually
0: very true yeah very true all I know is I want to see the scene where a bunch of coked out 60s, 70s actors <laughs> are getting thrown around by Bruce Lee.
2: <laughs>
0: they just got like blood coming out of all their noses, not from his fist, but just the cocaine you know, and the mix of everything.
2: They get thrown into like, you know, some piece of the set and it breaks and they jump back up and they're like, do it again. Throw me again. I want to hear it
0: again. <laughs> yeah. And this is also the year he married Allie McGraw, the actress. Uh, and the Rolling Stones threw some shade their way, actually, around this time. They, f- they referred to Steve McQueen in the song Star Star from the album Goat's Head Soup for which an amused McQueen reportedly gave personal permission for. And the lines were, Star fucker, star fucker, star fucker, star fucker. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yes, you oh are. Oh, my God. Yeah, Allie McGraw got mad with you for giving head to Steve McQueen. That was the line from a Rolling Stones song. <laughs> so, I, I don't know what... I guess they were angry that Steve and Allie got married. I have no idea what was going on there, but maybe Ally mm-hmm. McGraw had, like, dated one of them or some shit. Who knows?
2: They were probably but, all coked up, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they
0: have their own past. If you yeah. ever run
1: into them, we'll ask them.
0: <laughs> yeah, but Steve's... Steve's marriage to Allie it lasted a whole five years, and that ended in divorce in 1978. That was his second one. And uh, according to him, she was like the one who got away, was Allie McGraw. He, he actually really loved Allie McGraw. And that's what everybody says, like, again, you know, this is where Steve kind of went off the rails around that time. But, uh, also,
1: well, I mean, (laughs) one that got away, not for very long. Yeah. The finish line is coming up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: for sure. (laughs) Yeah. It's, um, that's, that's the thing. He kind of, yeah, we'll get it. But the last year of his life was, it was pretty sad, man. It was pretty bad. He was like, it was, he was out there. But, um, when he was married to Allie McGraw, though, they lived up the street from James Garner in Brentwood and James Garner was this huge movie star uh, in his day as well, mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s. And it was just these two movie stars living next to each other. And this is the guy I was talking to you about where, like, Steve would have been an annoying friend to have. <laughs> like, these, <laughs> this is one of the guys who he got along with really well. They were really good friends. They even, like, raced motorcycles together and stuff. But he would he would annoy the piss out of James Garner on purpose. He would just get, like... He said James Garner kept his lawn like really well manicured and kept like a really nice neat like environment and so steve would just like get drunk in his driveway and throw out his beer throw all of his beer cans into james's driveway <laughs>
3: what <laughs> yeah steve was oh just annoying God. he's oh just annoying
0: God. he just likes to annoy people they said uh <laughs> they said he was at one point he was living in malibu and he was next door neighbors with keith moon the british rocker from the who and he said that Moon would leave his bathroom light on some nights and the light would shine into Steve's bedroom window while he's trying to sleep. And he complained to Keith and apparently Keith never did anything about it. He kept the light on. So Steve grabbed a shotgun and blew the light out. What the
3: fuck? He <laughs> just shot his <the> <laughs> light out what next door. <laughs> and
0: they, he claims that he just shot the light out and like went back to bed. And Keith Moon confirmed that story. He said that <laughs> yeah. actually did happen. So That's incredibly funny. <laughs> although i don't imagine i don't imagine steve was sleeping that night let's be honest probably up like oh my eyes (laughs) by the time steve mcqueen gets to the getaway he is the world's highest paid actor already he is is the number one movie star in the world and it was cemented in 1974 i mentioned this in part one but uh he got paid 12 million dollars to do the towering inferno and if you remember, we'll do the old calculator again. But that's about 65.5 million dollars right. to do a movie <laughs> nowadays. <laughs> and he did this movie with his longtime professional rival Paul Newman, and he reunited with Faye Dunaway, and uh, it it was this. It was like his last hurrah, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, this would be his like kind of his last big big thing, and it was just sort of the pinnacle of his career. And he stepped away after this for a while. He mm-hmm. retired. He's like, I he got paid so much money he'll never run out. And he's been the highest paid actor for you know a year or so now. And so he's just he's done. He wants to go race motorcycles and he wants to go have fun. And uh, oh, and also Solar Productions, his production company, they made seven percent of Towering Inferno on the back
3: end.
1: Oh my god! As well, wow. yeah.
0: This was. Uh, this was the equivalent of one of those, like, Johnny Depp contracts for $150 million yeah. for a, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 So he kind of stepped away. Uh, he, he just disappeared from the public eye to focus on motorcycle racing and traveling around the country in a motorhome and just brought his vintage Indian motorcycles around with him around the country. A motorhome? Like, yeah, yeah. He got a motorhome and put all of his motorcycles on it and okay. just drove around the country and okay. ramped shit and, you know. Cool.
1: I mean, this sounds fun. Yeah.
0: Well, and so uh, he raced in the Mint 400 oh. where Hunter S. Thompson wrote Fear and Loathing. Whoa. Steve McQueen was in that race. That
1: is so cool.
0: Yes, man. He was wow. just, he had retired from racing. He's the richest movie star on the planet. And he just wants to go race his motorcycle. And Hunter S. Thompson wrote *Fear and Loathing* there. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, man, I thought that was cool. Yeah. Did uh, did he win? I don't know. I don't know how he did in that race actually. But I I gotta read *Fear and Loathing* again. Surely he mentions this, right? Or I don't. Know. I don't know, man. I don't
2: also. I don't remember that. I, I don't remember him mentioning fan, that either. I don't yeah, remember that being I mean, in there. It,
1: it, it also wouldn't surprise me if he has no idea who Steve McQueen is. Yeah, that's true. Too. Steve McQueen. Yeah. Yeah, never heard of him. <laughs> Never heard of him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it would have been don't know in movie the papers.
2: Songs. It would have, wouldn't it have been written? Wouldn't it be like the headline in Vegas, like Steve McQueen yeah. is racing in this mint? He was on too much ass yeah, to yeah, read yeah. the
0: newspapers.
1: Uh, <laughs> Hunter S. was true. barely was barely aware that race was happening.
2: The only papers he was aware of <laughs> was were like, the joint it. papers in his fucking <laughs> pocket.
1: Moving <laughs> yeah. pictures, never seen him. I need more grapefruit, more grapefruit <laughs> <Yeah>. and vodka. <laughs>
0: So, okay. I don't have time
1: for. I don't have time to sit down and watch a movie. It takes far too much concentration. All these people are living in prisons, concrete prisons. They
0: rent them for fifteen hundred dollars a month.
2: As your attorney, I advise you to take as much acid as humanly possible, and drive like a madman, and be a goddamn miracle if we get there for... Turned into a giant sheep.
0: That is a very good attorney. (laughs) Steve races in the Mint 400, and then he does this helmeted and uncredited. He's like beard, sunglasses. He's a little bit heavier now. He's just kind of like letting it all hang out. He doesn't care anymore. He's not doing his five-mile-a-day runs anymore. And he appears in this movie, this B-movie called Dixie Dynamite. As a, as an extra, as an extra on a motorcycle, they'd put out this big call for extras with motorcycles to do this movie. And he shows up and doesn't tell anyone who he is or anything. And apparently, they said it wasn't until the end of the day when he's signing out. You know, he's like signing a shit. They are like, "Wait, are you Steve McQueen?" I was like, "Yeah, man." <laughs> so just hanging out. That's so fun. Yeah. Is that the last movie he ever did? That was no. That was not the last one. Um, but that was close to the last one. He did two like right before he died. Mm. But that was basically he. That was just him having fun, you know. And I think this is around the time where I don't know. He didn't know he was sick yet, but I feel like maybe he felt it or something. You know, he was just kind of sure. Yeah. He was being, he was run down, you know, yeah. and this was around, he's about 47 years old here.
1: He looked at the script to Apocalypse Now and was like, Jesus, this is a lot to remember. This
0: is a long ass fucking movie. I'm not doing this. <laughs> I got to fucking go to actual Vietnam to film this shit? No. Hell no. Hell no, dude. I For got, how long? I got the Mint 400 coming up. <laughs> and also, I've worked with that Dennis Hopper guy before, he's a maniac. <laughs> Oh, man. He, he just knew. He did, yeah, I mean, Martin Sheen did have a heart attack filming that movie, <laughs> so maybe it's for the best that Steve went in his RV and said I think no. he chose wisely. Yeah, I think he chose wisely as well. We would have lost him even sooner, probably. <laughs> man. And, uh, yeah, so... During this time, Steve, he, he also, he required, he was so retired that he required a $50,000 fee just to read a script. If you wanted him to even read something, it was 50 grand. Put that through the old calculator, it's uh, 250 grand these days. So wow. That was just to read it. Holy shit. And consider doing the movie. That's... You really had to want
1: Steve. Yeah. You'd yeah. <laughs> be pretty confident he was going to like it. Yeah.
0: And I guess, you know, he's, I guess that's maybe that's an interesting thing. That's why he turned down all those big roles, is because those are the only people who had enough money to even pay him to read the damn things. <laughs> he didn't turn down any small roles. They don't have money for that <laughs> shit. I'm not paying him 250 grand just to read it and say no, you know.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he didn't return to acting until 1978. He did uh, "An Enemy of the People," and he wanted to come back way different. He came back uh, way against his type as like a bearded, glasses-wearing doctor in the 19th century. Um, and it was this—it was this play that was being turned into a movie. I think he's trying to get back to his roots here. You know, I think he wanted to do something more theater related, even though it was a film, you know, I, 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 bet he was probably wanting to go back to Broadway at this point. I Interesting. Just, I feel like he, I, I don't know. He was just one of those school kids in New York in the fifties. I just feel like they always kind of drifted back to the theater, hmm. you know, and I, I'm sure Steve did throughout his career. He probably took a few plays here and there, but mm-hmm. I, I bet that's what he wanted to do. Um, this is also 1978 was also the year he quit smoking three packs a day of oh. cigarettes and uh, he just started smoking cigars instead ah yeah way better for you I guess yeah <laughs> are they no not at all <laughs> <laughs> especially if you're inhaling them they're way worse for you you
1: might as well smoke three packs <laughs> is uh is was is this cancer lung related by chance actually no wait maybe <laughs> <laughs>
0: Who can tell it was from the, you know?
1: the
2: car exhaust.
0: It wasn't yeah. <laughs> that a lot of there was a lot of speculation. There was a lot of speculation as to what caused it. They also said uh um, But we don't okay. know what kind of cancer he had? So uh, mesothelioma. Which which is, is just cancer. Just um here in general. Well let me
1: see.
2: That's like what you get from asbestos. Just cancer of the soul,
1: like what 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 Yeah,
2: they well here. His
0: last two films were loosely based on true stories. Uh Tom Horn, a Western adventurer about a former Army scout turned professional gunman who worked for the big cattle ranchers hunting down rustlers. So that was pretty cool. That was a cool, like, you know, kind of last thing. He gets hanged in the movie for murder and the shooting death of a sheep herder. And then he did one called The Hunter, an urban action movie about a modern-day bounty hunter. And those were both released in 1980, the year he died. Um, So in January of 1980, he got remarried. Like, months, probably... Almost, he, less than a year before his death, he got remarried. He married a model named Barbara Minty, which I thought was kind of funny because the meant 400 oh, Barbara Minty, oh. you know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> she wrote in her book, uh, Steve McQueen, The Last Mile, uh, that during this time, he really started to feel sick, and he actually became an en- evangelical Christian toward the end of his life. He was... I think he was trying to repent. And this was, uh, he, <laughs> he had this flying instructor, Sammy Mason, who was a big Christian. And he really looked up to Sammy. And so that was one of the big reasons he became. And Barbara, Barbara Minty was also a Christian. And he, McQueen, attended his local church, Ventura Missionary Church. And he was even visited by evangelist Billy Graham shortly before his death. So he became super Christian this year the last year of his life he
1: was just trying anything
0: <laughs> he was he was he was repenting he was like i know i know it's coming cuz so basically they said during the filming of tom horn he thought he had pneumonia he felt Ooh. really sick and he was coughing up blood december 1979 after filming had finished he was diagnosed with mesothelioma which yeah like you said dev that's more like an asbestos related thing and a lot of people thought maybe it was uh, From the brake pads of race cars and motorcycles and stuff. I mean, being on a track was... was,
2: That was from the theater. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. You can't even even pinpoint it. He had so much shit that he was around, and all these people did whenever they
1: were back in these days. There was so much cancer in the damn
2: air. It's like shitty set builds. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, okay, so mesothelioma is a type of cancer that develops uh, from the thin layer of tissue that covers many of the internal organs. Most commonly, area affected is the lining of the lungs. Yeah. So I, I bet this was smoking related. He himself pointed to
0: two likely sources, including the time he took part in replacing asbestos-based insulation in the ship's engine room during oh, uh, his time in the Marines. That makes sense yeah that's and probably he, what it was yeah and dev you were you were right too soundstage insulation uh All was insulation. asbestos so have yeah. you guys
2: seen the late night infomercials that are like I guess oh yeah we watch tv anymore but uh they used to have them running where it was like you could be a part of a class action lawsuit if you have yeah. mesophilioma call <laughs> 1-800 blah, blah 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 and get your payout if you've worked with yeah, this they ruined, for this company, then you deserve whatever.
0: They ruined the Pink Panther for me for the rest of my life because the Pink Panther was the, the mascot for that insulation company. Oh. Uh-oh. Yeah, Ooh, the one that right. got sued. I was like, the Pink Panther gives you cancer. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's right. Yeah, and a lot of people speculated, you know, like I said, being on a track in the 70s was just any kind of racetrack is just not good for you. And he was sure. on quite a lot of them. There is... Heating up concrete for twelve hours, along with exhaust
1: fumes. I mean, there's nothing don't... healthy
0: about his entire life. His whole so... life was unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he smoked three packs a day while he's yeah. doing all this. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he. But he went down to Mexico. To get this controversial surgery. And I think this is what you're going to talk a little bit about, Drake. Mm -hmm. The apricot pit thing. Yes. By the way, I hate talking about this shit, but we're going to.
1: So this is is the thing that I was listening to a podcast called Behind the Bastards. Uh, If you guys haven't checked it out, they're not a sponsor, but it's my favorite podcast. The tagline is everything you don't know about the worst people in history. And they did one on fake cancer cures. Because there is a long history of terrible grifters uh, trying to make money off of fake cancer cures. people. Yeah. Yeah. And there is uh, very, uh, very loose laws about medicine in Mexico. And so there is this one drug called Latriel, I think it's pronounced. It is a, it is, a, it's a complete farce. Uh, don't go to Mexico and take it. Um, it is a naturally occurring chemical found in like certain plants, but it turns into cyanide in your stomach. Oof so it this is what killed him the oh. the treatment is actually what killed him because he ingested cyanide, whoa, so Jesus, yeah, <laughs> maybe he would have lived another ten years. I mean maybe yeah, maybe if he had gone to like a real doctor,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, apparently this was and i've I've seen this before, you know, you get desperate and mm-hmm. you hear about this miracle, and you go down mm-hmm. and it yeah, they just they kill you, yep. you know, man, so. just like the the just like the ass jobs that people are getting that are killing them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah the Brazilian, Brazilian ass things, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's killing people out yeah. there. Yeah. Butts, don't 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 go do that. <laughs> De- deadly
1: butts. <laughs> don't don't go do that. No, don't
0: go do that. They said it releases some sort of fat cell into your fucking heart. Whoa. Yeah, that's really? what it, the the surgery can go so badly wrong. But I'm Yikes. done talking about surgeries for the day, or there'll be no more podcasts because I will <laughs> pass out. So McQueen was, <laughs> we'll talk about something more more uh, cheerful, like his cremation. McQueen, <laughs> McQueen was cremated, and a memorial service was held at his home with a biplane flyover by his flying buddies. I bet his funeral was crazy. Did, uh,
1: did he ever fly a plane in the movie, in any movie? Did
0: Actually, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think he ever got a chance to actually like do pilot stuff in a movie. Although he was doing it in his own time, plenty he was flying all over the place. <laughs> he was always up there, cool, like uh, like old in wings, gunboat Smith, man. <laughs> <laughs> Just
1: go put the box. In. <laughs>
0: yeah. he had a wax statue at the Hollywood Wax Museum at the time, and when he died, they had to put it in storage because thousands of people were flocking to it to like put cards on it and touch it and they Whoa. were touching his face and they were like oh my God you're melting Steve McQueen we' got to put him away and they replaced him with like I know, Steve's real body or something I don't know <laughs> they just propped him up in there <laughs> so the last words that Steve ever uttered on screen were God bless you in the hunter in 1980 and he died shortly after the release he did get to go though he got to go to the premiere and stuff that was kind of the last time anybody ever really saw him. And that was uh that was it. That was it for old Steve. He died in 1980 and that's all I have. <laughs> but I do have some interesting facts. I okay. want to tell you some like this is just sort of facts about Steve that I didn't know where they fit, so I just put them here. Cool. He was posthumously awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at uh, 6834 Hollywood Boulevard on on 1986. And he also got inducted into the Motorcycle Hall of Fame in cool. 1999. Yeah, they were. They, he's still getting flowers to this day. I think they still, you know, every. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I mm-hmm. thought this would be a guy who maybe more people could relate to, knew about at least. Yeah, you know, I'd say yeah. most people know about Steve McQueen. Yeah,
1: yeah, at least heard of him.
0: Oh, and so also, I I don't know if you remember me talking about, but you know, he always visited the Boys Republic. School that he went to, mm-hmm. and he had this weird thing that no one knew why. When he would take a movie, he was such a big fucking movie star. When he would take a movie, he would uh, ask for bulk of stuff. He's he wanted bulk clothes, bulk razors, um, like all sorts of shit, soap, you know, toothpaste, this and that. And it was because he was donating all that shit to the school that he oh, went to. Oh, very cool. Yeah, he would yeah. he would take all this stuff and put it on a truck from the studio. And go bring it to the school. And he did that forever. He did that for like every movie that he would do. He would make this huge donation of stuff. And he'd give them money and stuff too. He would like... Apparently he would go... Even when he was the biggest movie star ever. He'd go down there and like play pool with the guys and stuff. Wow. the new boys at the school. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that was very important for a lot of new kids there too. Yeah. Yeah. And if you guys want to hear. I have the list of stuff that he turned down. Yeah. (laughs) Deb, you in? Yep. So he turned down the lead male role in breakfast at tiffany's he turned down oceans 11 he turned down butch cassidy and the sundance kids uh the driver apocalypse now california split he turned down being dirty hairy um like i said a bridge too far the french connection Uh, He turned down Jack Nicholson's role in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. (laughs) And he turned down Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Spielberg said McQueen was his first choice for the character of Roy Neary in Close Encounters for the Third Kind. And according to him, he said McQueen went to a bar with him to meet him about it. And he said he got, McQueen got like hammered drunk on all these beers at the bar while they're having this meeting about doing this movie. And at some point, he just kind of told Spielberg like, well, I can't do this. I can't do this movie. And Spielberg said, why? And he said, there's a scene where the guy cries and I can't cry in a movie. I've never been able to like bring myself to cry. (laughs) <laughs> and so which i don't know if that's even true he probably did at some point he probably just <laughs> forgot but spielberg even said well look we'll just take the crying part out of it and steve mcqueen said that's the best part of the fucking movie you can't take it out and i can't do it so you got a, so yeah they went with uh richard dreyfus he got that role instead uh charlton heston's role in planet of the apes he turned down
1: convoy death wish like, every big wow, movie, Deliverance. that's so crazy. Yeah, I, he turned I, down Deliverance. I, these, are, these are all movies that are so big that even I've heard of pretty much all of them. <laughs> I'm telling you, every big, <laughs> big movie. <laughs> he uh,
0: He turned down one movie, Sorcerer. That was a big one. And basically, he just said he didn't want to be separated from his wife for that long. And he wanted them to cast her, but they didn't do it. So he said, fuck you. I
1: think it's cool he turned all those
0: movies down though. Me too. I mean,
1: he's got such a legacy already, and like it really probably. I mean, I'm not super familiar with how big any of those actors were when they took those roles, but I, I do assume that you know him turning down some of those roles probably made someone else's career. Yeah, so. uh,
0: yeah, they, a lot of people. I mean, it definitely mm-hmm. did. Yeah, he. It was like when Arnold Schwarzenegger stepped out of weightlifting. He's <laughs> like, I got to let somebody else win. <laughs> Steve McQueen yeah. was just letting people win, man. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, I mean, I have a list here, but it is too long to even read. He basically had a Jay Leno garage, like, throughout oh, his career. Oh, wow, yeah, that I makes mean, sense. Yeah, he <laughs> that had makes every sense. old car. He had a, a hangar full of cool-ass old planes and, like, war planes and shit. Um, he had, like, a museum for cars and airplanes throughout his entire career. And, yeah, that makes total sense for old Steve but uh that's it that's all i got for old the the man the myth the legend steve mcqueen the movie star motorcycle riding plane making out with flying <laughs> women
2: <laughs> cool. what, uh, gun shooting acid tripping gun shooting wild man wild
0: man what wild steve
1: saying? Interesting Yeah,
0: yeah. I thought he was a good one. He yeah. was a good one. He definitely gave me the good '60s, '70s vibes that I needed yeah. for the end of the summer. You yeah. uh, know,
2: certainly sure. one of my like new favorite human beings in the industry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. That's, That's one I, I so w- wish you could
2: hang out with Steve McQueen now. I, would be <laughs> a I, I don't.
1: I don't know if he'd be very fun <laughs> to hang out with. <laughs> he, he seems like just a... get drunk and punch Yeah, yeah, yeah. He seems like. He's a cool celebrity, but like not necessarily like someone I'd ever want to meet or hang like out Daniel with. Daniel Day-Lewis. Well, yeah. Let me Daniel rephrase Day-Lewis. that. It
2: would, it would be cool to see Steve McQueen at a bar. <laughs> like watch him in his element. Watch somebody else get knocked out by him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'll definitely grab the popcorn and watch from afar. Definitely. <laughs> be like, oh, dude, Steve McQueen's over there. Just stay back. Watch him in his <laughs> watch him in his natural habitat. <laughs>
2: It's only a matter of beers. How many? <laughs> <laughs> that that story
0: just like really hit home of him being at the bar with with Steven Spielberg. <laughs> He's just slamming beers, and it's just that's like that's
2: good advice though. You know, if it's true.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, don't. Yeah, make, cool
1: that he was honest about it. Yeah. He was like look, I can't cry. <laughs> I can't do it Sorry
0: He's like I made a hundred million dollars There's no more tears in my body There's no more sadness No he was a very sad man I mean let's be honest
1: There's no amount of money That could fix that man Yeah And uh, it's also cool That he's like No the crying part's the best part of your movie Don't take that out Don't yeah. take it out for me Yeah Don't take it out for me man Unless you got 75 million dollars Lying around
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: He's like I know who you're gonna be and Shit Cause old Steve, he was he was young. He had done Jaws, but he was still really young at that time, you know.
1: Oh yeah, it was their Steve.
0: old no, Steve. Oh yeah, Steve. two Steves. Bar. That's what Steve McQueen. <laughs> that's what Steve McQueen really said. He's like, there can only be one Steve on set.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. That would be how hilarious would that be if that created like you know a weird dynamic where you'd have to go Mr. Spielberg and then Mr. McQueen instead of just Steve and Steve. Steve
0: Steve One and Steve Two, and they got to fight to the death over which one is which.
2: I think I think Steve McQueen, whoever that is, no one ever would win over Steven Spielberg.
0: He was a black belt. Yeah, I think Steve would have whipped that ass.
2: I think he's just like you know Steven Spielberg's like my size is shorter. <laughs> we're, not, we're not big human beings <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah that's it that's all. that is Steve McQueen for you everyone I hope you enjoyed it I really enjoyed doing the uh, research for this one it was a lot of fun I watched a lot of Steve movies and uh, they're some of my favorites for sure
1: yeah awesome. awesome well I guess Dev where can they find you
2: uh, everyone just <clears throat> keep following Abracadabra Films. we got some really cool things we're working on and some exciting projects coming down the pipeline that uh, we'll be putting up on social here in the coming months. Cool.
1: You can find me on Instagram at Drake Cummings, on Twitter at Drake underscore Cummings, on TikTok at Hollywood Drake, and you can check out uh, my merchandise line. Uh, I started an apparel company called Raging 20s. Uh, it's uh, you know we're back in the 20s again so a uh, new decade new uh, uh, new new thing that I'm selling um, <laughs> James where can they find you Well they can
0: find the film history socials at film history history of film FHHF podcast all that good stuff you can find mine everywhere at James Wyatt Scott and you can also find me. Drunk in a driveway, throwing a bunch of beer cans into my famous neighbor's yard and really (laughs) pissing him off. (laughs) (laughs) And that was film history. The History history of of film. Film!
3: You know what I'm talking about!